ึ่งนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนมัสสาม
So the sensitive organism encounters the sensory impressions of the world and and then the mind registers and, and reacts. And it's always been like that and it's always going to be like that. That's the nature of sensory existence. What the Buddha wanted us to understand was that if there's right mindfulness or right presence of attention, then we don't mistake these impressions for being more than what they are. And he elaborated in saying that it is because we mistake these impressions and confuse them to be more than what they are, that we suffer. So the the message is that if we don't want to suffer, we don't want to be confused and unhappy, then what we need to do is correct our understanding so that we're not misunderstanding, not appreciating our lives, the agreeable and disagreeable aspects of it. So with this, this metaphor or various other metaphors and words of encouragement, the Buddha taught to, to really cultivate attention, the discipline of attention, so that we can apply it in, in every moment. It talks about applying it to sitting, standing, walking or lying down. It took the four postures. And sitting, standing, walking and lying down is aimed at, at covering everything. And so there's the encouragement to cultivate this, this attention to whatever we're doing. Sometimes we might think that spiritual practice is something we do in a special place doing a, a special activity like being in a Dhamma hall practicing meditation or being at home sitting on our meditation cushion. This is the real practice. Now from the Buddhist perspective, that might be one aspect, that's the formal aspect of real practice, but real practice is being present in every moment, whatever's happening, with whatever our experience is, and not dividing up our experience, saying that this sort of experience is a spiritual experience, or this is something worthy of mindfulness, worthy of attention, and that one's not. No, that's not the, that's not the point. We're encouraged to be present with every experience, so that we're not fooled by any experience. Now, the Buddha himself, in his own life, uh, experienced the limitation of, of being identified and caught up in the impressions, the experiences of his, of his heart and mind. And we know the traditional story of the first 29 years, and cultivating pleasure in every way possible and apparently he was very successful at it and lived a a very happy, pleasant life. But then around the age of 29 encountered old age sickness and death and it really unsettled him and he fell into despair. And so having been caught up in in defining himself as pleasure, he then went to the other extreme and defined himself in terms of his painful feelings to see how much pain he could put up with and this was a traditional understanding at the time and somehow if you really suffered it was good for you and that made you become detached from the life from life from worldly existence and I guess to some extent this sort of attitude is still around that people will try and get as much pleasure as possible from sensory experience and, and define themselves. And how, how pleasant can I make my house? 
my relationship? How much pleasure can I get out of my relationship and the environment that I live in? Having nice fragrant smells in the bathroom and lovely agreeable sensations, uh, textures and experiences and and this is based on uh, a, uh, an understandable preference for pleasure, but to some extent, it's, uh, it's we I think probably all experienced it, taking it to a, an extreme whereby, when we're not feeling pleasant, then we feel like we're failing, and so we define ourselves in terms of the amount of pleasure we have, and that's where there isn't any mindfulness of the experience of the reality of pleasure. We all know on some level that pleasure comes and goes. But And if there's mindfulness, well then we know when there's pleasure. We know there's pleasure. There's pleasure. This is pleasurable. This is agreeable. This is an agreeable experience. Like the last few days, the last few weeks here, the weather's been really agreeable and just so lovely, ending summer and going into autumn and and it's just so lovely being in Northumberland and at this time of year and and there's a real sense of agreeability, the fragrances in the countryside, the harvest and the blue sky and the birds and and the fruit and it's all so lovely and and nice people around and good visitors and one can experience agreeability and now if there's presence of mind and we're mindful in the moment, and then when there is this agreeability, there's also a kind of a knowingness. This is agreeable. There's a knowingness. There's an awareness of the pleasure of that. Now, this knowingness doesn't detract from the pleasure. And the same with pain, uh, painfulness when when conditions are disagreeable. It, um, when this physical disagreeable sensations and or emotional sensations. For the Buddha, in the time of the Buddha, that self-mortification was, was fasting and starving himself of even water and, and even air, and not to mention getting around without clothes on and other forms of asceticism that, that really increased the sense of physical frustration and really indulging in the feeling of suffering and finding an identity in that, thinking that identifying himself in the feeling of pain was going to somehow liberate him. Identifying himself in the feeling and the sensation of pleasure hadn't liberated him, so he thought, well, identifying himself in the sensation of pain might do the job, and became an ascetic. The equivalent today, I suppose, is where we let ourselves get depressed and or angry. Many times I, I meet people who, for years and years, are dwelling on anger. And the anger and resentment is really painful and, and sad. And, and on some level, these people might say they want to let go of it, but there's also some sort of a commitment to dwelling on it. And I understand this as, as being a, a sense of security that comes from defining themselves as unhappy or as angry. At least there's a sense of security, at least we know who we are. 
sometimes. We, we can get even even feeling really afraid even. People can get addicted to feeling afraid. It gives them a sense of being somebody. And if all we're aware of is all we've suspected is actually defining ourselves in terms of our feelings, initially pleasant feelings, but we get addicted to just being feelings, then even having a bad feeling makes us feel like somebody. Not feeling anything or not being our feelings actually feels very threatening or can feel very threatening. However, the Buddha's own experiment and investigation has told them that, uh, that this wasn't a, a way, path to liberation, and then the discovery of the middle way of what he called right mindfulness regarding all of existence, all of experience, clear seeing, a presence of attention that meant that he wasn't confused by any sensation or experience, mental or physical, emotional, subtle, coarse, or anything else. But that was liberation, and so that was the teaching, and the encouragement to cultivate this mindfulness, so that we don't misperceive things. So that when, when pleasure comes along, there's, as I said, a knowingness of the pleasure, and this mindfulness, this knowingness, doesn't detract from the pleasure. It just means we don't get lost in it. And when there's uh, pain and misery and disappointment, a sense of failure, or we. We get caught up in some fear or anxiety, you know, internal, some imagined anxiety that we can get lost in. We can feel it, but we don't get we don't get defined by it. We don't get limited by it. Not, we don't get lost in it. So sometimes people mistake the teaching on mindfulness and confuse it with with what is actually a, a psychological state of of being out of touch, <coughs> or being split off from experience, where as a result of unfortunate experiences earlier on in life, is is a sense of not trusting in life and being once removed from all experiences not really being able to surrender oneself into any experience, totally, fully. Yeah. It's, it's like being standing back and looking at oneself living life, saying, this is me doing this, this is me doing that, and, and not being able to... Self-surrender is not a possibility. There's always self-abandonment is not a possibility. There's always standing back watching oneself. Now, it's an understandable uh, predicament to be in, um, given the experiences that many people go through and the, the sense of distrust that, that can develop in life, also as a result of, of, of uh, the way the situation that families grow up and often people move around from one place to another these days and don't grow up with the same peer group and the natural development, psychological maturity, maturation of a sense of trusting relationship doesn't develop as it it would do in an appropriate situation. And so many people uh, grow up with this feeling of being once removed from life and not really being able to throw themselves into anything. And so this feeling of being once removed, many Westerners have picked up the Buddhist teaching on mindfulness and thinking this is the same thing as being split off and 
and watching himself. But this is not the case. This is not what's being referred to. So the experience of right mindfulness is not, does not mean that we don't experience what we experience. It means we experience it fully and accurately without obstruction. So the feelings of pleasure we, we can really feel as pleasure. I mean, you eat an agreeable meal and there's pleasure and there's knowing that there's pleasure. There's, and if there's that knowing of there being pleasure, then we're not building up the potential problems for later on. Now sometimes people think, well, I don't mind being mindful of pain, but I don't want to have to spoil the experience of pleasure by being mindful of pleasure. Well, that's when we really don't understand mindfulness. If we really understand mindfulness, well then, we know that when there's pleasure, we're not getting lost in it. So that when situations change and there's disappointment, we don't get lost in that. That's the point. It protects us from getting lost. It helps us keep things in perspective. This kind of knowingness means that we know things, for instance, like the impermanence. We know the impermanence of sensations, of perceptions, of feelings. Somebody turns up we haven't seen for a long time and it's such a pleasure to see them. We can feel it in the heart, feel it in the body, feel a real joy and a delight at, at seeing an old friend and this warmth and of friendship and good company can be experienced. If there's mindfulness there, if there's knowingness there, developed attention there, then there's also a not getting lost in it. There's also a quiet kind of understanding that eventually this person that we're so pleased to see will also go away. And the pleasure of this coming together is an impermanent condition. Now, it's, it's really difficult to talk about this subject without feeling like mindfulness somehow detracts from the experience. As if when we meet a dear friend again, for haven't seen for a long time, that being mindful of the transitory nature of this experience means that somehow we can't really fully enjoy the meeting. Now, that has to be understood as a misappreciation of mindfulness. It's a quiet knowing a quiet presence that sees things in perspective. It sees the relativity of experience. It knows the relativity of experiences. I like the image that's often given for developing right understanding of practice, um, which says that we see the mind as like a vast empty room and the mind is like the space of that room. And there's a window, an open window, and a shaft of light is penetrating that room. And in that shaft of light, we can see specks of dust. These specks of dust we can, are highlighted. They float through the empty space, but they, as they pass through the shaft of light, they're highlighted, they can be seen and then recognized. The shaft of light is the light of attention. The vast empty space is the nature of our mind. The specks of dust are the sensory experiences of sight, sound, smells, taste, touches and mental impressions. These specks of dust float through empty space. And if there's right awareness, right attention, right mindfulness, there's a knowingness of it, there's a seeing in perspective. So even if it's gold dust, we don't get lost in it. 
And if it's foul, objectionable dust, we don't get lost in our reactions for it. It's knowing them for what they really are. And this is, uh, this is the function of mindfulness, to know things the way they really are. To see the relativity of things. Now we could say, well, what's the point of this? This all sounds very subtle and, you know, you know very good, but what about the fact that America's building up for a war with Iraq? What good does it do to know that sensory experiences are specks of dust floating through the empty space of our minds? Well, it can do a lot of good because when you think about America and whoever else building up for a war with Iraq, there can be very strong emotional experiences in response to that. We can feel anxiety and fear. We can feel indignation. We can have all sorts of thoughts about George Bush and and Americans and Western attitudes and get indignant and enraged and if we get caught up in these things we can might, we might think that they're righteous we might feel it's very convincing that we shouldn't go to war war is bad and generosity and kind and peace is good and and so although we have these feelings and uh, we if we don't have them with mindfulness we get caught up in them and then we get caught up in them we become them and the emotional reactions become intense and excessive and then our speech and our thinking and our behavior is defined by that experience. Our lack of mindfulness leads to wrong action, wrong speech. It goes like that, wrong view, wrong mindfulness, wrong action, wrong speech. Wrong not in a moral sense, but wrong in the sense of inappropriate according to reality. Whereas if there's a cultivation of, of mindfulness, we can feel indignant. We can feel what we feel about the very real risk that there might be a war in the near future. We can think what thoughts come into our head about George Bush or Tony Blair or Saddam Hussein or anybody else who's on the scene. We can think these thoughts, but we know them. We don't get lost in them. We can feel what we feel, but we know them, we don't get lost to them. And so we stay in a position of optimum responsibility. Mm. It's not that we're trying to stop feeling things or think things. We're trying to have no feelings or feelings or thoughts. Sometimes people think that you know, Buddhist teaching is to not feel or think anything. Well, that's very unfortunate. That's not the case. We might also find that, you know, thinking about the possibility of war, that we, we really like the idea and think, well, Saddam Hussein is a, you know, he really is a, a rogue and a monster and, you know, just nuke the guy. You know, just nuke him and get rid of him. Just get him off the planet and, and just slaughter all those Al-Qaeda, uh, whatever they're called, guys, you know, those terrorists. And then we catch ourselves saying, oh my goodness, how could I be having such a thought? And, and then start feeling really guilty. I, I shouldn't want to nuke Saddam Hussein or nuke the Iraqis or you know, Al-Qaeda. Or, uh. If there's mindfulness, well then, you know, even if we start having really inappropriate thoughts of 
such a nature of wanting a war or bloodthirsty thoughts or our guilty thoughts that come afterwards with mindfulness, with presence says it's okay to know those thoughts it's not okay to act on them and promote war or hatred but when those thoughts arrive arise in our mind we don't have to be afraid of them we don't have to block them off one of the greatest gifts and greatest teachings I think I've ever heard, ever, is the only thing that you need to be afraid of is the length of time it takes for you to be mindful. And I fortunately came across that teaching when I was at a, in a period of great stress and struggle in my early life as a monk in, in, in Thailand and I was living, I think it was my first year, and I was living on the banks of the Mekong River and, and I was suffering from malnutrition and, and, and had terrible dysentery and, and the Russians were occupying Laos just a few meters away across the river and there were machine guns going off at night and traces going over the top of the monastery and, and I couldn't live on the food that was given and I couldn't speak the language and I was in a, terrible state of total anxiety and confusion and really couldn't get any perspective no matter how hard I tried to meditate or practice any skillful technique it didn't really work but coming across this teaching that said oh, the only thing that you really need to be afraid of is the length of time it takes for you to be mindful to remember somehow made good sense to me that I had faith in the teacher and that teaching really connected. I really believe that. I really trust that. I feel good about that. It doesn't matter what passes through that empty space. The nature of those specks of dust. They're all specks of dust. Right understanding, right thought, right action will come so long as we remember them for being what they are. And so we have this encouragement for, for, for cultivating this remembering Yes, it's good to practice morality. Yes, it's good to develop concentration and, and study wise teachings and develop energy. All these faculties are very important. But the Buddha held up this mindfulness. This is most important. Without mindfulness, we can lose balance. Even the virtue that we cultivate, even the goodness, we can start to smell bad because we become so good. You can stink of virtue. But if there's mindfulness, well then there's a recognition of, of where we're going out of balance. And like, for instance, the cultivation of generosity or morality. If there's mindfulness, well then as we develop this generosity and kindness and morality, there's an awareness, there's a recognition there, there's a knowingness there that sees as conceit starts to grow. And the perception of I'm generous or I'm kind or I'm moral there's actually a taint on consciousness. With mindfulness well developed, we can see that taint developing. Without mindfulness, well, then we can think, well, you know, getting good, getting moral, getting generous, these are all good things. But we lose perspective, we get lost in it. So the encouragement is to cultivate mindfulness in whatever we're doing in all situations, all experiences, all sensations. And if there is 
the right mindfulness, well then there's a recognition of the relativity of experience. We don't, we don't have to take sides with our experiences. We don't have to take sides for or against pleasure. Pleasure is just so. Pleasurable sensations, impressions of the mind are just so. Painful, we don't have to take sides. We, because we're experiencing misery and a sense of failure, it doesn't mean to say that we're a failure. We're not, we don't have to become a failure because we're experiencing even the perception of failure. We can feel what it feels like to be a failure. To fear if we humiliate ourselves in public. And, and without mindfulness, we can really get caught in it and get blaming of ourselves or others. But with mindfulness, we can feel a feeling of humiliation, to feel really worthless and unrespected. I got a letter today from, from a young monk I know practicing in Thailand, and he said, well, my practice these days is, is just to feel what it feels like to be totally disrespected. He's living in a situation where he's you know, pretty well misunderstood and, and uh, it's very not, people are not being very supportive of him there and he's committed to being there for the three months of the while so he can't get out and he's not starving or you know, going without really, but it's humiliating and but he was, he was saying in his letter today with, with real equanimity and clarity, he said, well, my practice is just learning what it feels like to feel disrespected. Right, right that's it. And if, I'm sure, this difficult time was not something one would set up for him or anybody else, but because this is what has come to him, then learning how to feel what it feels like to be disrespected when he gets more senior, as he probably will, I'm sure he will develop and grow into a, a very highly respected monk and teacher, that when he is receiving all sorts of praise and people telling him how wonderful and marvellous he is, there will be mindfulness of what it feels like to be respected. He won't get lost in being respected. So it is with, with praise and blame. that you know, When we people blame and criticise us, if we... So, well, this is an opportunity to practice. You know, what does it feel like to be mindful of blame and criticism? Because we know with the consequences, if somebody praises us and tells us how wonderful we are and we get really lost in it, they butter us up and then we, we buy into it and then they can basically manipulate us and we feel conned and used and we don't like ourselves and we resent maybe them. And so, well, why did we get caught up in it? Well, it was a lack of mindfulness, a lack of perspective. Well, the next time we're feeling blamed and criticised, say, well, if we can be mindful of this, feel the feeling of criticism, feel what it feels like to be criticised or blamed or, or to fail. And then the next time when we're succeeding or being praised, we'll be able to maintain mindfulness in that. Or clarity, when there's clarity, sometimes there's clarity and confidence and other times there's chaos and confusion. If we give priority and preeminence to the cultivation of mindfulness, not the mind state, not the content, not what's passing through the mind, not the specks of dust, not the nature of the wave that's passing across the ocean, but just remember the ocean, be the ocean, and don't become the wave. If we can remember that, well, when we're experiencing confidence and clarity and there's a sense of presence of mind there. Well, it feels really good right now. 
Yeah, really clear. And sometimes when you're feeling really confident and together, and you think, yeah, I really got it sorted. And if we start feeling like that, start thinking like that, say, oh, right, okay, well, that's what it feels like right now. This feels like I've got it sorted. I feel really confident. There's clarity. There's order in my mind, order in my life. And we just know, well, yeah, maybe, but it's not a sure thing. Everything changes. And the encouragement we have from the Buddha and support of mindfulness is just to reflect that everything changes. And, and if we do remember that when we're feeling confident and there is order and clarity and confidence in our life, well, then when it changes for whatever unfortunate reason and there's chaos and disorder and confusion, lack of confidence, we don't get lost in that. And then we realize, oh right, that was the point of the effort. Often when we're making our effort and practice to be restrained and our attention and not just follow things, we can't really see the point. (coughs) It's only later on that we realize the benefit. Like in formal meditation, as we're focusing attention on the sensation of the breath and there's all these interesting things come along to think about. Creative fantasies we have and I could be developing this, I could be building that, and I could do this, or I could rewrite that program like this, or or I could, you know, arrange for that deal and and sitting in meditation, some of these things seem so creative and inspiring and attractive and but the encouragement is to learn how to say no to them first, learn to inhibit our tendency to follow them. When we can choose to say no to our tendency to follow them, well then we can say yes. It's not compulsive when we can say no, and so we inhibit the tendency and come back to the meditation object of the breath, the simple, clear, neutral feeling sensation of the body breathing, and stay with it. And, but it really feels, I really want to think about it, it's really attractive, that's, a really, that's an extraordinarily profound thought that I'm just about to have, or just had, and if, if I could just follow it and develop it a little bit, and, and say, well, can I say no to it? If we can say no to it, there's a fear there that says, well, if you say no to this profound thought or this this beautifully, this exquisitely creative fantasy that is just emerging, if you if you can say no to it, if you say no to it, then it'll die. You'll lose your creativity. You'll lose your intelligence. You'll lose your potential. You'll lose your superior ability to think profound thoughts. And as this fear comes up, if you restrain your mind, then you'll lose this ability. Well, traditionally, that's you know that's understood as Mara coming in and threatening us and say, "Don't practice restraint, whatever you do." So we don't ignore Mara. The Buddha didn't ignore Mara. The Buddha just said, "Oh, I know that's that's Mara." Okay. Well, in our case, you know, we can call it Mara. We can say, "All right, well, okay." So there's fear, there's anxiety. Maybe I'll lose my creativity if I inhibit this tendency to follow this fantasy. But we don't know it's the case. So we're not blindly willfully focusing on our meditation object and we're restraining our mind, we're mindfully attending to it. So the encouragement is to restrain the mind, to come back to the meditation object, learn to say no to these impulses so that we we are in the centre of our lives. The discipline of attention means we're in the centre of our life. We can choose to offer attention here, to really give ourselves into something, totally, without the mind being compulsively distracted this way and that way. And then later on we discover that that suddenly, without our expecting it in, in everyday life, that, that there's a complex problem arises or a, a challenging conversation or a difficult decision has to be made. 
but we're really right there for it. There's a strength and there's a presence there. So where did that come from? Well, where it came from is the practice that we've been doing. In the moment of restraining our attention from following the habitual tendencies to follow fantasies and thoughts and sensations, we may not see the strength building, but that exercise, that effort to restrain the mind, mindfully, feelingly, come back over and over and over again, willingly, begin again, stay with the breath, that generates real strength, strength of presence, strength of mindfulness, sati. And then when we need it, spontaneously it manifests. Spontaneously there's this, this strength, this ability is present for us. Now, if we can make that equation, if we can understand that, well, it's very helpful in our, our meditation. We, we become inspired and encouraged to cultivate mindfulness, this, this discipline of attention. I use the word discipline not in some brutal, regimental way, but in a, in a sense of giving direction to something that's dynamic and alive like our attention. If we give no direction to it, it will just go anywhere and everywhere. So with feeling, with skill, with sensitivity, learning to apply the discipline of attention and discovering for ourselves this capacity, this strength of living with increased mindfulness. And when we do experience this, well then there's an increase in faith and confidence that even when there are very difficult and challenging situations, whether it's global or personal, individual, inner or outer. There's that feeling of, oh, there's a certain sort of strength there that we can meet it. We don't have to feel, we won't feel, we won't feel so threatened by it. We won't necessarily turn away from it and say, oh, I don't want to think about it. We won't necessarily like it, but our likes and dislikes are no longer defining us. If we're really giving value to mindfulness, if we're really appreciating the strength, the, the capacity of mindfulness, the power, the magic of mindfulness to deal with the complex and difficult challenges of life. If we have this faith and confidence in mindfulness, well, then, as I was saying, when these things come to us, we won't feel so threatened. It's just the same as, you know, if you you have some weakness in some area, and you know, maybe you have some back problems, and your back is giving out all the time. And there's certain things, lots of things you can't do because you you've got a certain weakness in your back, and then you find yourself a good physiotherapist or a good trainer who teaches you some exercises, some really right on exercises that give you just the right sort of strength and, and you find you've got the confidence back again. Say, right, you, you can do things that you weren't able to do before. And that confidence is there with the knowledge and the experience, the perception of an inner strength. In that case, physical. Well, so it is with the spiritual strength of the cultivation of the spiritual faculty of sati or mindfulness. If we come to a careful, careful personal appreciation of its functioning, how to cultivate it and then experience of its presence, well then there will come with that a sense of confidence and strength which will help us meet saying, whatever the situations, whatever the circumstances we find ourselves in. 
And thank you very much for your attention.